Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us historian and author Susan Schattenberg. She is professor of contemporary history at the University of Bremen, and today we are discussing her book, Brezhnev, The Making of a Statesman. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. Hello to everybody. Professor, why did you write this book? Uh, that is a good question. There are several reasons. Um, the first is prob- uh, probably because I became director of a research institute in Bremen, which is focused on uh, Samistar, that is um, published underground, self-published underground material from the Soviet dissidents, but also from Poland and Czechoslovakia. And I wanted to know more about um, the times when the persecution of the dissidents began, and that was uh, namely under Brezhnev's rule. So I wanted to understand why the dissidents were suppressed and why they were deemed such a great danger to the Soviet uh, state. And um, on the other hand, I was tempted by this figure of Brezhnev who seemed so boring that everybody said, oh my God, you're going to write about Brezhnev. (laughs) How will you stand this and not fall asleep? Um, This gray bloated figure uh, which seemed so uninspiring and uh, the falcon of the Cold War who crushed the Prague Spring in 1968 and then invaded Afghanistan in 19. 79. And somehow I felt uh, challenged by this uh, figure and uh, wanted to find out more. Um, even more since uh, there are very good biographies on Khrushchev. And at that point when I started, I learned that William Taubman was going to write a biography on Gorbachev. And so I thought it's good to fill this gap and find out more about Brezhnev because to that at that time, there was nearly no um, academic biography available. If your book could be said to have a thesis, what would it be? Oh, the thesis, the main thesis is probably <laughs> that Brezhnev was a very sympathetic uh, guy who loved a good life and uh, jokes and women and and failed catastrophically in foreign politics. So he he wanted peace, but at the end, uh, things were worse in foreign politics than before he started. Would it be true to say that you did not really anticipate finding him on a personal level as such a sympathetic individual? Yes, that is correct and was to my total surprise uh, what a nice guy he was how much he tried to please everybody, and also 
that he was no politi political um, man in the beginning, that he did not care about the party, about politics, um, that he came from a humble background, um, from a working uh, family, but uh, nevertheless, and um, in, in contrast to his official biographies, he was never um, flirting with the party or the Bolsheviks and the revolution was uh, nothing to be greeted by him or his uh, father because he was rather young in 1917, only 11 years old. Uh, but quite the contrast, uh, contrary, it was uh, a catastrophe um, to the family when the um, revolution came and then the uh, civil war uh, loomed in and they had to uh, suffer from, from famine, from um, disease, illness. He, he nearly was killed um, during a bad infection and so they barely survived this, this time uh, of the civil war. Would it be correct to say that uh, his social class background uh, or family, his social, the social, I'm sorry, the you can fit his uh, family into the social class of the petty bourgeoisie? Uh, not exactly. It was rather the enlightened working class, so the uh, upper working class or intelligentsia of the working class. Um, because the, um, his father uh, somehow uh, got the money, or uh, rather um, uh, Brezhnev was um, granted a stipend to uh, visit the, um, the higher school, um, which was really um, rare and a very seldom occasion for working class uh, um, children. So. Um, this was what his parent, parents wanted for him to um, move upward through education uh, that he would get a good uh, exam from school and then of course um, enroll in university and become an engineer. Uh, that is probably what his mother wanted for him because the engineers were the um, yes, that was a bourgeois class at the place where, where they are living in, in um, Kamenskoye. Um, and uh, Brezhnev later uh, said that his father wanted him to become a diplomat. So that is what they were striving to to um, get into or reach the um, petit bourgeois, um, 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 how to say level of society, but his parents still were not. And uh, in fact, um, in terms of his lack of, uh, for lack of a better expression, partinost uh, sensibility, didn't he for a time wish to become an actor? <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was the most curious thing um, I learned, that he uh, obviously wanted to become an, an actor, he had a great uh, passion for acting at the theater. He and his uh, two younger siblings joined an amateur um, acting group in, in Kursk in the 1920s. 
where they took flight to from uh, Ukraine, Kamenskoye, and even later in the 1920s, when he was already uh, studying at a uh, college to to get a land surveyor, he uh, earned some money as an extra in a local theater. And and later in the 1960s, uh, when he was already uh, general secretary of the party, he loved to entertain his uh, staff and and aides at the um, at the government's dacha where they retreated to to prepare um, the reports to the Congress or the plenary sessions. So in the evenings he loved to climb a chair and tell by heart the the poems of his beloved uh, poet uh, Sergei uh, Yesenin. So this was uh, absolutely a talent he had and he loved to, to display. Now, can you um, uh, tell the audience a little bit about the question of sources, in particular um, the reliability or lack thereof of uh, the official memoirs and uh, Brezhnev's notes um, to the writing staff who actually did the, um, uh, who actually wrote the memoirs as such? Yes, yes, sure. So, uh, on the one hand, um, there's um, there are a lot of uh, sources available um, because almost all of his advisors, aides, or later opponents have written memoirs or left diaries um, about him. Um, when I was preparing this book, it was still very difficult to get access to his personal file which is meanwhile available, but at that time they were still processing it and um, they gave only uh, some documents to the reading room in, in Moscow in the archive of contemporary history. So that was rather uh, difficult and as maybe some of the historians know, then when, when the Brezhnev file uh, finally appeared and was available, uh, the archive closed for uh, <laughs> moving and and uh, when it reopened then already Corona hit and so it's up to date, not very easy to, to get access to, to his um, personal files, but it is in theory it is uh, possible and I got some of these uh, documents um, what is quite useful, these are the three volumes of his uh, so-called working diaries, uh, which consist uh, mostly of just uh, keywords, so nearly no whole sentences, and very often it's hard to make sense of what he was trying to say. So these are rather to-do lists, what he wrote in the morning, what he wanted to during the day or whom he wanted to call or, who, or whom he was going to meet. Um, but at least from this you can tell uh, with whom he was um, um, was speaking and uh, who he did see and uh, consult, uh, etc. And uh, concerning the famous 
uh, so-called trilogy of his memoirs because, in fact, there are eight parts of them, and by the first three volumes are the most well-known. And they were all written by uh, professional writers or top journalists. Um, but it's not only uh, fake, but they um, got a very rare access to all the um, archives at the places Brezhnev uh, used to, to work and live. So they got a hand on every document uh, they wanted. Uh, but after um, submitting their text, they immediately had to uh, hand in also all the material which was then immediately destroyed. So no access to that. And um, what they made of this um, material is quite fascinating because they, they did not, um, um, how to say, they did not uh, lie or invent things, but they just constructed totally different stories from the material and uh, often tried uh, either to make out of Brezhnev a hero or a very humble, good, uh, simple Soviet man, or sometimes they still uh, real heroic deeds from other persons and assigned them to, to Brezhnev. So these are sources which have to be read with, with great uh, care. Um, but if you find um, the originals in the archive, and in some cases I did, then you have a good uh, chance to compare what was the um, original document and what they made out of it, uh, what kind of, of history appeared then. So if there are quotes in these uh, so-called memoirs, they did not dare to invent or falsify them, so the quotes are from the originals and, and can be trusted. Do we have an idea why he joined the uh, Communist Party so late? I think he was in his early 20s when he did so. Yes. Um, I mean, there, there are no um, notes or documents, or he himself did not comment on this. But it seems like it was at the very last uh, moment of his uh, early career that he had no other chance than uh, to do it, because he was already a, a land surveyor, uh, getting more responsibility on the administrative level uh, at the places he was working um, um, at that time in, in the Urals. And uh, that uh, um, ma meant that he had to be a party member to uh, have this responsibility and to move further upwards. So there was uh, no, no choice that was already at the end of the 1920s. And what is quite uh, funny or sometimes left a space for um, guessing and, and uh, some um, some questions uh, what happened here and if he was of um, um, uh, strange origin or bourgeois origin is that uh, he was at that time a land surveyor which was um, not a worker anymore but was uh, a white collar worker and that is why he had to 
uh, wait two years to get full uh, membership. So he was endorsed into the party as full member only in 1931, that is at the age of uh, 25. Now, as a land surveyor, uh, would it be correct to assume that he had a uh, important role, obviously at a local uh, level, in the collectivization? Yes, uh, absolutely. His uh, task was to um, yes, to take a measure of, of the land that was uh, confiscated by the state and then um, ascribed to the kolkhosis or the sovkhosis and um, also to uh, point out which um, land of minor quality was left for those who um, did uh, refrain from um, entering the Kolkhosis. So he found himself in, in the middle of this decolonization and collectivization uh, process. And uh, obviously, we can even see this from his official memoirs. Uh, he was confronted with, with violence uh, because the, the peasants, uh, as we know, um, tried to uh, get rid of these land surveyors and, and the officials uh, sent from the party and the state. So uh, there were even not only injuries, but also um, um, fatalities and uh, shootings at night. And it seems like, and because we, we not really know what, what happened exactly, and um, but that he was really scared of uh, this uh, situation. And um, although he climbed the um, career ladder very fast up to leading uh, to a leading position um, then uh, in Sverdlovsk in the Urals, it, it seems like he um, took flight from there in summer 1930 to avoid further uh, violent confrontation with, with the peasants in, in the upcoming new collectivization um, campaign which uh, began that summer. So it's a little bit of speculation because um, there's no direct um, utterance by him or um, other persons around him but everybody was wondering why he left uh, the Urals so suddenly from such a high post he had already climbed. How did Brezhnev survive the Great Terror of the 1936-1938? Amazingly well. Uh, so um, there, there is a hint that there was uh, a persecution against him because he had not asked for allowance to um, add another floor to a building of the um, technical college he was leading as a director um, at that time. But uh, later he wrote in his um, official papers that he was never under party persecution or never was... Um, was uh, got a sentence uh, for for um, for bad deeds, uh, and rather the contrast the contrary he 
uh, during this time his political career uh, begins. So until 1935, uh, when he graduates from the um, engineering uh, um, uh, technical college and, and becomes an engineer, there's nothing pointing at his uh, later career as general secretary and first man in the Soviet Union. And it's only the terror that uh, moves him upward and what it was found striking, although other historians have uh, found this before me or always hinted at this fact that this generation ha had no choice to, to move upward and to um, occupy uh, all the um, posts which were um, devastated or left empty by by the terror, by uh, arrests and, and and the shooting. And it, to to me, uh, from the sources I found from uh, Nepodzerzhinsk, that is how Kamenskoye was called already at that moment. So his his hometown still. Um, that he really struggles with his uh, upward mobility and he doesn't want to get all these um, responsible posts in the uh, city administration and and also in the party bureau of Nepal-Dirjins because uh, on the one hand he, he loves his uh, so-called simple life as an engineer with with uh, dancing and, and theater playing in the evening. And on the other hand, he was uh, probably well aware of the danger he, he uh, ran in because um, around him, everybody and uh, a lot of his uh, supporters, his former teachers of his neighbors, were already arrested. And uh, that was quite striking to me because I found uh, the minutes of a a meeting of the Politorg Bureau um, of November 37, when he had to uh, denounce his former um, supporters. And obviously he tries to evade this and he tries to focus on, um, on, on matters like uh, let's look how to improve infrastructure, let's look how to um, finish building the theater, the, the tramway, etc. And he refrains from calling, um, um, let's shoot them, and uh, they are all enemy of the people. So this was quite important to me to find that he was not a Stalinist. He was not a supporter of the Stalinist rhetoric that these are all enemies of the people, and that he somehow tried to find a middle way between denunciation and, and uh, being denounced himself as a traitor. Would it be correct to say that Brezhnev had a good war? And exactly how much combat uh, did he come experience? Because that became, of course, later on with the publication of his memoirs, uh, a topic of a great deal of discussion. So the, the war experience was um, to him uh, terrible, what we know, and uh, very crucial for his later um, engagement in, in foreign politics. 
to um, um, evade at any cost uh, a third world war. And again, we only know about this uh, from persons who had contact with Brezhnev later and who refer uh, that Brezhnev said, uh, you know, in Novorossiysk, I, I really went through hell and I thought I wouldn't uh, survive this inferno. So although he's not a soldier at the front, uh, he's neither a commander, uh, he's a regular polit commissar um, who has the, the task to um, care about the troops, to agitate them, to prepare them morally, psychologically for combat. And in this function, he is about three kilometers behind the front line. So not on the front, but still close enough um, to to learn about all the horrors. And uh, in the beginning, he's in charge of evacuating his um, place near Petrovsk, where he's a political secretary at that time. And uh, again, in Novorossiysk, he's one of the last to, to leave the town when it's still already under um, fierce uh, German fire. And uh, so w what struck me is that <laughs> he, he tries to, to um, stay the same uh, guy as before, who is good in, in handling things and organizing um, material and who cares about that the railway has to be cleaned from snow and that the soldiers have warm clothes and winter and that they are provided with, with food. So this is obviously his, his strength. Uh, to organize uh, things, um, but all the um, great deeds, uh, either at the front or in advising commanders, this is all pure fiction. When did he first meet Nikita Khrushchev, and why did Khrushchev decide to become his patron? Uh, that was still before the war in 1938, although Probably uh, it was a sh short meeting uh, when Khrushchev uh, came to Ukraine as uh, first uh, secretary of Ukraine. And uh, obviously he was looking for young cadres who would be loyal to him and who would help him to rebuild the party after the uh, so-called purge that is uh, the a shooting of nearly all the party leadership in Ukraine in, during the Great uh, Terror. And um, obviously they, they liked each other, so there's a very nice photo of the two of them um, chatting in the war in 1943. And um, yes, we, we don't know exactly what was the relationship because uh, Khrushchev later, who was ousted by Brezhnev, avoided to say anything positive about Brezhnev, and this is the case vice versa. So after Brezhnev ousted Khrushchev, he never mentioned or avoided to, to mention him again. But 
here uh, photos tell another story, and uh, we know that uh, Khrushchev uh, used and needed uh, Brezhnev um, to build up his own um, his own pool of loyal persons, protecting or supporting him. Um, going to the provinces or um, Soviet republics and running them for him and giving him backing against uh, Stalin. So that is why Brezhnev was uh, crucial in, in uh, Khrushchev's team. And obviously he did it so, so well that he was... Um, not only first given to to rebuild uh, after the devastations of of the war uh, cities in in Ukraine and then uh, Moldova, uh, but also uh, Kazakhstan and run their uh, the Virgin Land campaign for Khrushchev, and he did this so so well that uh, finally in 1956 Khrushchev called Brezhnev to Moscow and uh, made him his, his second hand and a uh, very uh, close um, um, aide and somebody he, he trusted and uh, he even entrusted to him the very important uh, military industrial complex. So Brezhnev was surveying the development of, of rockets and, and the Sputnik. And uh, finally, he was even given in 1960 the post of um, the chairman of the um, Supreme uh, Soviet, which was equivalent to the president um, of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the post uh, Brezhnev loved very much. Why uh, do you characterize Brezhnev as a strong leader, and what would you say would be his leadership style? Um, his, his leadership style was to uh, to wait for the right moment to to act, or to uh, get rid of a person, and. Um, um, exchange a person. So that is obviously why he was underestimated or um, some some of his co-conspirators thought he was a weak leader and somebody who would serve for a while as substitute and then could be um, replaced by, by a real leader. So this was um, obviously his strength that he was no um, no uh, character in the way uh, Stalin or Khrushchev were, so neither violent, not um, not this kind of um, um, boasting and uh, screaming man like Khrushchev was it. And I think it's it's very crucial to have. As a contrast uh, in, in mind, both Stalin and Khrushchev, to, to um, whom Brezhnev obviously wanted to be the opposite. So the man, man who was listening, the man who was understanding, and uh, his uh, comrades, as well as his later opponents, said he was in a way 
democratic because he cared about the people. Uh, he first uh, listened and only in the end uh, said what his own opinion was. He always tried to figure out a middle way and to include uh, everybody in the decision-making process. And this was obviously his strength that um, he uh, tried to um, include, although and, and embrace also the, the um, Stalinist, the, the um, orthodox political uh, figures, as well as the more liberal ones. And um, he, he succeeded in, in, in this way that uh, first he was underestimated in the strength he had, and uh, then he found a way to um, play out one against another or uh, wait until the right moment to remove somebody who was a potential opponent to to his cause. So, and of course, he learned from Khrushchev that it was uh, crucial to um, to be supported by the party leaders. Um, and uh, this is why he always called them nearly every day and, and asked uh, how they were feeling personally, and but also what they needed for their republic or for their region. And if he wanted to come to become rid of one, he always did this with honor. He invited uh, the person to his office, explained the situation, uh, begged for forgiveness, promised um, good post uh, um, as an ambassador or as a minister or something else. So he um, avoided to to um, to to produce anger and resentment against him very successfully. Why did Stalin appoint Brezhnev to the Presidium in 1952, and why was he demoted after Stalin's death in March of 1953? Uh, this was obviously pure maneuvering. So Stalin um, wanted to um, to to uh, to enlarge the party presidium, and that is to. Um, um, divide the power uh, among the men there um, and so they could not feel so safe and it was uh, better to him uh, than to have 25 persons uh, than uh, 11 as there were before. So uh, Brezhnev as um, person or leader uh, di did not play a role, he was just a, a, a play figure or just an extra who um, played a minor role in Stalin's game of, of power. And that is why he was removed uh, immediately after Stalin's death, because uh, Khrushchev and, and the former uh, member of the um, presidium decided to um, reduce the number of members to the former one, so again 11, and so Brezhnev uh, fell out of this 
of this round. But it's it's funny because there are rumors uh, from different sources saying that uh, Stalin <laughs> um, became aware of, of Brezhnev because he was so good looking and he was uh, taking holding him for somebody from Moldova and addressed him as somebody from Moldova and that there were so good dancers and when Brezhnev rejected he was not from Moldova uh, Stalin did not want to hear about it. So, uh, but this is rather an, an anecdote. But it uh, tells maybe uh, um, a good deal about how Stalin <laughs> used persons and even um, yes rejected better knowledge uh, because it was not what he wanted to hear. Why was Brezhnev appointed head of state in 1960? Um, this was probably, again, a move by Khrushchev to, um, to, to, to broaden his political support by a loyal uh, man of his, and that was, uh, that is what Brezhnev still was in, in 1960. Um, he wanted to, uh, get rid of, um, the, the former uh, president and uh, uh, probably thought that Brezhnev was a good uh, match um, to to get this position, but very soon uh, realized that Brezhnev was uh, enjoying this post too much because uh, he loved uh, traveling uh, to Africa, to South Asia, to Finland to, to chat and joke, and he obviously uh, was um, uh, laughed or at least met with sympathy by the foreign statesmen, um, um, especially in, in Finland. So uh, it is sad that Khrushchev became angry or envious because there were even some um, hints in, in Western press uh, report that Brezhnev might be uh, Khrushchev's follower and uh, Khrushchev reacted quite um, furious about such hints that there might be already a successor to him. Why did Brezhnev agree to join the plot which resulted in Khrushchev's ouster in October 1964? Uh, even more, it's sad that he was the one who organized it, or we don't know exactly who were the first ones to plan this uh, plot. Uh, but the most uh, of of those uh, of the participants um, testify that it was uh, Brezhnev from the very beginning. Um, he, together with uh, Patgorny. Uh, the party leader from Ukraine were the two uh, crucial uh, figures um, meeting and uh, talking over one by one of, of the party leaders. And um, uh, honestly, in the beginning, it was tr uh, quite hard to understand why Brezhnev um, 
took the step uh, because Khrushchev was the the his main patron, the, the person he he owned everything, everything, every uh, step of his career too. Um, but Khrushchev uh, became that is what uh, all his um, his fellows uh, say too self-confident and uh, here's obviously his character also uh, at play because he loved to tease and uh, persons to give them uh, bad nicknames to um, humiliate them, to scream at them in, in public that means at a a party congress or at the plenary session of the central committee and uh, um, around uh, 1960 he um, exchanged nearly every of the um, party leaders in the republics and uh, in the regions without um, taking um, any uh, concern or or um, uh, without uh, consulting uh, with the persons and without thinking what this this meant to their careers, to their lives. So uh, there was a, a an opinion in the majority of um, the, the party members that Khrushchev was a threat to all their career, uh, even if he did not arrest and, and uh, shoot them like Stalin. Um, but uh, nobody felt safe anymore, and the, the humiliating uh, screaming and shouting was just disgusting to, to everybody. And um, this is what also happened to, to Brezhnev, that uh, Khrushchev started to mock him more and more in his presence even, and there were very bad incidents. Uh, Foremost at the, the um, plenary session when Brezhnev in, in summer 1964 lost the post of, of the president of the Soviet Union, when uh, Khrushchev said, Look, they are applauding because you're leaving. And um, yes, so uh, it, it was very obvious uh, to Brezhnev that Khrushchev just ridiculed him and was not a supporter anymore. And I think this this personal and this career moment is, is very important, but of course uh, there were other uh, major charges like uh, the, the way he presented the Soviet Union um, abroad, um, that he was uh, with his chaotic uh, reforms a threat to um, the inner, the domestic situation, that there were first uh, riots because um, the, the prices for meat had risen and the uh, situation with uh, providing the, the population with food was worsening. So um, there was no... Uh, no um, field, uh, um, maybe beside the Sputnik, where um, Khrushchev was successful, and so the, the party leaders from the Central Committee 
um, decided to replace Khrushchev with somebody who, who would do better, not uh, um, not necessarily with somebody who would change everything, but just somebody who would uh, improve the situation uh, in the country and in the world. When did the initial uh, collective leadership of the Troika, Podgorny, Kosygin, and Brezhnev, become more of uh, the personal regime of Brezhnev himself? Could, could you explain that a little bit? Sorry. <laughs> By what point in time did uh, Brezhnev become the lead, by far leading figure in the leadership, whereas initially in 1964 it was more of a collective leadership of the Troika, Kosygin, Podgorny, and Brezhnev? Um, it seems like th there was uh, no trust from the very beginning, and there is something we already find after Stalin's death that they swear. Uh, or swore to act collectively and have a collective leadership, but uh, hadn't learned how uh, how to do this, and even hadn't learned how to how to trust uh, each other. So everybody um, of them was a patron uh, on his own, with his own uh, clientele or loyal supporters. And it was uh, probably quite clear to all of them that this was just um, for a certain time a, a corporation because they had a, a, a common opponent, which was uh, Khrushchev. And, but uh, neither friendship or real uh, comradeship um, be between them. And um, quite important was uh, from the very beginning that um, Brezhnev managed to, um, to, to bring his uh, man into important uh, posts. And uh, these were um, mainly, um, so, so he, of course, he cooperated with Podgorny, who became um, president of the Soviet Union in uh, 1964, uh, 1965, so one year later. And um, but with this, he he at the same time uh, lost his uh, important uh, post in, in the party, so it was in fact a, a loss of of power within the party, although it was a gain of, of prestige. And um, with Kosygin, he had uh, to cooperate for, yes, almost all the time he, he stayed in office uh, until his, uh, his death in um, 1980. But there was a clear um, rivalry from the very beginning and uh, we see this already with the first reforms um, that uh, Brezhnev was able to launch the first uh, reform um, in agriculture, trying to improve the situation of, of the peasants. And um, while uh, Kasegin was the author or the um, initiator of 
uh, economic reforms uh, the same um, autumn 1965. So, and uh, although it's not true that uh, Brezhnev was not a supporter of, of these reforms, he obviously always envied uh, Kasegin and he was definitely very satisfied when the, when the so-called Kasegin reforms uh, failed, uh, which became obvious toward the end of the 1960s. So, and he used uh, every um, moment, uh, every plenary session, uh, and in, at the end of every year to, to, um, to tease, uh, Kasegin and to, to, uh, prove, uh, how, how, how incompetent he was and his leaders, uh, how bad the performance was of his ministries, uh, his ministers, um, etc. So, uh, this was not only a personal rivalry, but it uh, really had a very bad effect and damage to the whole economic situation because they were more involved in their personal rivalry than to find uh, joint solutions for, for the, again, worsening situation um, of the economy. So in point of fact, Brezhnev was not opposed to what was called at the time uh, the Lieberman reforms. No, no, he was not. So that is what uh, um, was thought in, in the West, or was which was what was reported. Uh, but uh, since we have um, access to the sources, there's uh, no uh, opponents from from his side. He clearly saw that it was uh, definitely necessary to give more responsibility to. Um, to the uh, enterprises and uh, give them the possibility to um, rule on their budget and to um, um, develop incentives for the workers and pay um, extra for a good performance and, uh, and, and other measures. So uh, these were even parts of uh, what he uh, worked on before he became general secretary in in, in 64. It was more that he was envious that Kasegin was the one who was uh, allowed to introduce this and not he himself. Now, contemporary scholars and people subsequently, I'm thinking in particular of Roy Medvedev, state that in the, the after 65-66 there was a step back from the de-Stalinization policies of Khrushchev. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, absolutely. Although um, I um, wouldn't call it a de-Stalinization because um, Brezhnev was, uh, as I said before, no, no supporter uh, of Stalin. He had suffered uh, under his rule, uh, not only before the war, but also after the war. And um, it was uh, pure calculation or um, pragmatism that he, um, he wanted to um, make sure the Stalinists were not 
um, um, plotting against him so that he tried to satisfy all uh, the, the Stalinists, the hardliners, as well as the, the liberals. And um, so it was not uh, that he himself uh, wanted to rehabilitate um, uh, Stalin, and uh, he, he even said uh, twice uh, that what happened under Stalin must not uh, repeat. Um, nevertheless, and I think this is more not, not on the level of, of politics, but more on the level of culture or um, behavior that he uh, was tired of um, showing all the, the dirt uh, of history and he felt more comfortable with uh, focusing again on the deeds of history and what they had um, achieved and not of what uh, uh, was wrong in history. So uh, this was, of course, a, um, a major turn in, in um, politics, in history politics, and uh, this is why, um, toward the end of the 1960s, the former um, uh, freedom of press or possibility to talk openly on Stalin's crimes, at least in, in memoirs and novels, um, uh, and it, and uh, but there is no uh, open um, uh, appraisal of Stan at, at that time, even uh, for his uh, uh, Stalin's um, uh, birthday in 1969, so the 19th uh, birthday of Stalin. Um, they decided how to handle this, and there was common sense that there was should not be um, any uh, appraisal or, um, or glorifying. But they decided to have two, two different official articles, uh, one uh, more focusing on the good deeds and one more focusing on the bad deeds of, of Stalin. Now, how would you characterize uh, Brezhnev's policies in the Czechoslovak crisis of 1968? It would appear from the, some of the records that he went back and forth, and it was not until very late in um, uh, July 1968 that he finally decided what needed to be done in terms of uh, a military intervention. Yes, uh, this this was one of my uh, biggest surprises that he was in the beginning a real supporter of uh, Alexander Dubček, the new elected uh, leader of the Czechoslovakian uh, Communist Party, and it seems like he saw in Dubček something like uh, a, a Czechoslovakian Brezhnev, so a, a young, promising uh, leader. Um, talented, um, full of energy, and um, he was in close contact with him and uh, probably felt a little bit like being his, his, his patron. 
and um, until the very end, he refused to accept that Dubček uh, himself was a counter-revolutionary, how the others in the Politburo uh, called the spring and the reforms in, in Czechoslovakia. But uh, uh, Brezhnev insisted that there were uh, these counter-revolutionary forces in the Czechoslovakian party, and Dubček had to to fight them and to get rid of them to um, to um, replace them with um, with um, yes um, persons he could trust and who were faithful to to the Communist Party. So, and this is um, nearly the whole conversation between him and Dubček. Um, from um, early spring up to August is about uh, how Dubček has to handle this uh, crisis, uh, which it was from the point of view of Moscow. And uh, Brezhnev had initially great confidence that Dubček would handle this in the way he wanted him to do. And um, only in, at the very end, in a long phone call in um, August uh, um, 68, uh, he realized that uh, Dubček uh, was not willing to um, suspend these so-called counter-revolutionary forces because Dubček said um, there were elections to be held and probably he would not be re-elected, and probably um, even the Communist Party or the Party of the Communists uh, would be dissolved and there would be no more Communist Party. And this was uh, absolutely a red line that um, the Communist Party would vanish and would um, um, voluntarily give up power um, and this red line could not, uh, should not be crossed. So only then um, uh, Brezhnev decided to give in to what uh, others from the Politburo as well as the German, East German and the Polish uh, communist leader had asked him before to, to send troops and to crush the, the Czechoslovakian spring. Would it be correct to say that you view Brezhnev as a sincere supporter of what was called at the time the policy of detente? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I even would say that he's one of um, the initiators and, and had uh, great uh, success in a way in, in doing so. So it, it's um, amazing that nearly at the same time he writes to the West German Chancellor uh, Willy Brandt uh, as, and, and Willy Brandt uh, writes to him and both letters say that we have to find a way to rebuild trust and to uh, have a trustful um, exchange and um, so this is how a very um, a story begins of, of great closeness and friendship, not only with the German Chancellor, but also uh, with the French President and um, Pompidou and with 
U.S. President uh, Richard Nixon. So Brezhnev clearly has an idea of these uh, big three, how he calls them, um, to to change the world, to, to end the Cold War, uh, to get a new security order settled in, in Europe. And uh, so it's him who um, um, insists on um, 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 arms um, limitation talks, which lead to the first uh, uh, treaty of, of sold uh, strategic arm limitation uh, treaty in 1972 signed in Moscow and then the second one signed in Vienna in 79. And it's also him who talks his Western uh, state, um, the, the Western state men over into the, um, into uh, talks on a um, conference on security and cooperation in, in Europe. Uh, which uh, ends uh, with the um, signing of the Helsinki Treaty in uh, 1975. So these are both Soviet initiatives. And in the beginning, um, the Western partners, or rather at that moment still opponents, um, don't know if they may trust this or if it's pure propaganda and it takes a long time until they um, give in and, and give it a try and find out that Brezhnev is quite honest about arms limitation and, and cooperation in, in Europe. And this is obviously Brezhnev's best time between 69 and uh, 74, 75 then he tours the world and tries to charm everybody, thus uh, also using his um, acting talent, uh, displaying himself as a nice guy, a Western-style um, statesman who is uh, close and, and far from uh, ideology. Now, how responsible, uh, given what you just said, was Brezhnev uh, for for lack of a better expression, Soviet adventurism in the Third World beginning in the mid-1970s? Um, th this is actually uh, hard to say because uh, I have no uh, first-hand sources on, on that. And he uh, becomes predicted from 75 on. So from the beginning of 75, he's uh, absent for around six to eight weeks for uh, rehabilitation and um, barely manages to uh, be ready to to fly to, to go to Helsinki for the, for the signing of the Helsinki Treaty. So he retreats from politics and the the other um, party leaders uh, take uh, over and uh, obviously also, again, in a, in a way Brezhnev would have avoided to um, again uh, show the so-called aggressive side of the Soviet Union. But uh, of course he 
thinks that communism is better than capitalism and is the better system to adopt for decolonized um, countries in, in Africa, South America and South Asia, as is Angola um, after the retreat of uh, Portugal as colonial power. And uh, but, but what uh, nobody knows or believes at that time is that the Soviet Union is, is not a decisive force that Angola um, switches camps or sides to, to, to the communist side, but it's really Cuban uh, soldiers who have flown in by Castro and the Soviet Union just provides the infrastructure and some um, advisors, military advisors, but nevertheless is um, accused of, of again exporting um, communism and revolution to, to uh, Africa and the world. And uh, again, I don't want to um, apologize here for, for Brezhnev. It's just unclear how much he is still involved in these um, decisions. And uh, how do you evaluate his role, if any, in the intervention into Afghanistan in 1979? Yes. Um, so at that time, his aides uh, say that he was barely able to grasp and and um, and understand what was going on around him uh, due to his uh, pill abuse and so it's it's not me who found this out uh, first that at that time they have on the politburo set up a, a troika um, um, to handle the situation in Afghanistan and uh, he's of course not uh, among the, them, but uh, from the um, from the entries of the secretary of his uh, office in the Kremlin, he know we know that he was at that time when the decision was taken in the Kremlin, so he was not absent, and he was participating in the Politburo sessions, so he knew what was uh, going on, and he was obviously uh, not interfering or um, contradicting. But maybe what is more um, astonishing is that um, the uh, Soviet leadership and the Afghanistan, the Afghan uh, first king and then president, were on quite good terms and had a very close relationship. Also. Um, cultural exchange, um, um, cooperation in infrastructure projects, etc. And uh, when the Democratic Party, so the Revolutionary Party of Afghanistan, uh, took over in spring 78, um, the Soviet Union was not amused at all. They were rather um, disturbed and in the launch. And they were shocked by the terror regime, which was established by the communists in Afghanistan, which was resembling uh, Stalinism to them. And uh, again, what, uh, what the West at that point did not want to believe is that um, 
the Afghan side asked uh, around 30 times for troops from Soviet from the Soviet Union to support uh, the revolution against um, rioting um, the rioting um, population. And uh, all the time, the Politburo in Moscow refrained, and they had a very clear analysis that if they did that, they would, would lose all their prestige, all their room for maneuvering uh, in, in, the, um, in the world. And nevertheless, finally, they did exactly that, um, just because on the one hand, um, there was another coup, and um, the entrusted persons uh, were um, dis dismissed and, and murdered, and also they had um, intelligence uh, reports that uh, the new Afghan leadership was turning toward the CIA and USA for help, and they wanted to avoid that at, at any cost. So despite their better knowledge, they invaded Afghanistan and went into this um, disaster. You, um, or at least the publisher in the subtitle book, uh, states that uh, Brezhnev was a statesman. Uh, a, do you agree with that um, uh, accolade? And B, um, why so? Statesman is not ordinarily a term that one associates with Soviet leaders. Yeah, yeah. No, no this is definitely my title. That <laughs> uh, it's it's quite uh, funny because um, I have the book published in German, Russian, and English, and uh, every time the the respective publisher wanted me to have different subtitles, and sometimes we could agree, and sometimes not. And and um, what is important to me, or what I wanted to show, is that Brezhnev definitely behaved as a statesman and not as a party leader, or at least he tried to become a real statesman in the Western sense uh, to act independently from ideology. He always um, said that he, he never read Lenin and he definitely did not. <laughs> and, um, that was no point of reference uh, to him. He, he really cared more about uh, peace in the world than, than about uh, communist um, ideology. And so this is uh, um, a very important point to me that he was a statesman. And on the other side, and I have this in my German subtitle, that he also was an actor or, and even used this talent to, to act as a statesman. Uh, not in the sense that he tried to, um, um, how, how to say, how to, uh, to, to um, have a bad game, to, um, though it was not, not um, sorry, I'm losing, I'm, I'm not finding the world. It was not, not cheating, it wasn't about cheating, but about better, um, better policies. Uh, yeah, better policy about um, um, a better fitting role for for that uh, kind of policy he, he wanted to to prevail. 
If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? <laughs> that the Soviet Union was not the evil empire we always thought, <laughs> and that things are always more uh, complex. And um, because if you take just the, the facts or the political events, you could tell uh, or say, okay, so um, what does change, uh, what does your book change? Because we have Prague and we have Afghanistan. But um, to, to see the, the struggle and uh, the doubts behind it and to, to also focus on, on the good years under Brezhnev and his friendship really with Willy Brandt and uh, Richard Nixon is important to, to understand how, how politics work. And at least uh, his advisor said without Brezhnev and Pompidou and um, Nixon, there would have been no, no Gorbachev and, and no perestroika, uh, no breakdown of the Soviet Union. On that observation, Professor, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Schottenberg. Thank you. Thanks a lot for your interest. Mm-hmm.